So just imagine the sitting there, Vajragaha, the full moon night in the Indian clear night sky, under the bamboo rustling in the wind, and then 1250 Avahans surrounding the Buddha. And then the Buddha recites the Ovada Patimokkha. Are you all familiar? That is a beautiful summary of the whole Dhamma, in particular for monks. It's not primarily intended for the lay community, but uh, the basic principles apply in it to lay life. And it's a summary in only 16 lines of verse, 16 short lines of verse, uh, describing the whole practice. And this Ovada Patimokkha is apparently the same for all Buddhas. Living in different times, having still different character, different Buddhas have slightly different teaching style. But this one is taught by all of them as a teaching of all Buddhas. So just to emphasize how important that is, this is something every Buddha will teach, apparently literally, and this is only 16 lines in verse, so every line, every word is of supreme importance if we truly want to practice. In fact, during Buddha Vipassi, 91 eons ago, this was the Patimokkha the monks would observe. They would meet every six years only, and then their Patimokkha, the rules, was simply this 16 lines of gata, of verses. Those days, lifespan was 100,000 years for humans, and they had very few defilements. They were very pure, almost a little bit more like devas. Nowadays, lifespan is 100 years about for humans. So that is three orders of magnitude less. It's a big difference. And we have to meet every fortnight, as monks know, not once every six years. We have to meet every fortnight. And we have to recite not 16 lines of verse, but 227 main words. A big difference. But nevertheless, and it's still possible to practice. But if you ever feel disappointed that the world is such a bad place, what else do you expect? Yeah, hundred years lifespan for humans is quite a corrupt place. But the amazing thing is that the escape to Nibbana is still open and can be achieved. It's probably quite a unique situation at 2,500 years down in the Sasana. So already two and a half millennia from the Buddha. And then the Buddha where the lifespan is so short and corruption great, so very rarely in the universe at any time will you be able to attain Nibbana when the general corruption is so great. So when you ever get despondent what's happening in the world, it's good to contemplate, you know, that is a nature. But what counts more is that we can attain Nibbana out of that corrupted times. Whereas the devas which wouldn't have war and which wouldn't have all these problems, often for whole eons, there's no Buddha. And that's very difficult even 
when the lifespan is very long and even in much purer realms it's much more difficult to realize Nibbana than it is for us. I use it as a reflection if I ever feel down after looking at the news what to expect in a hundred years lifespan. But what counts, whatever is happening there, very disappointing in the world at large, the door to Nibbana is still open. And the door to Nibbana is in our own heart. It's not somewhere out there. Now here in this one fathom long body endowed with consciousness and perception, this is where the end of suffering can be found. The first four lines are very well known of the Ovada Patimokka. Sapa, Papasa, Akadanang, Kosalasa, Upasampada, Sachitta, Padiyoda, Panang, Etang, Buddhana, Sansanang. Abstain from any evil deed, accomplish what is good and true, and fully purify your mind. That is what all the Buddhas did. Now that is even almost like a summary of that summary. Now that is uh, maybe the shortest, one of the shortest ways you can express the Buddha Dhamma. And important, that starts with abstaining from doing evil, to shy away from evil, whether in particular in action of body and speech and even in the mind. And that is a foundation. So we have to be careful that we never wash ahead trying to do something good. And for doing good, then claiming that the purpose justifies a means and then maybe doing something bad because we fear we have achieved something so good. That doesn't work. The very first thing is to absolutely make sure that what we do is not harming or evil in any which way. And the whole argument that the purpose justifies the means wouldn't work. If the means are evil, we can never achieve good, according to the Buddha's teaching. It's somewhat similar, like this old Hippocratic oath in medicine, the first of all, not to do harm to the patient, the very minimum, and then of course, based on that, and then you try to help them. Similar in our practice, and the very first we have to make sure that no harm or hurt emanates from us, that no evil emanates from us. And then we try our best to accomplish what is wholesome, both in body and speech, and even in the mind. And finally, in the number three, to fully purify the mind. To purify the mind from the defilements, from greed, hatred, and delusion. To purify the mind from ignorance, avidya, and craving, tanha. Because even if there's no evil emanating anymore from us and 
we have accomplished what is good and wholesome to such an extent that someone may have a very good samadhi, that their mind is very pure. They don't even have any central desires coming up anymore because the samadhi is completely suppressing the five hindrances and the defilements. But the teaching of the Buddha now reaches even further because even someone who has got great samadhi and no defilements arise for the time being, the underlying tendencies are still there. And once they start losing their samadhi, then the defilements may crop up again. They're not fully purified in their mind. And the full purification in all respects of the mind is again something which you will find only in the teaching of the Buddha. Understanding the Four Noble Truths to fully eliminate the asavas or corruptions. So abstaining from evil, establish oneself in what is wholesome and good, and purifying the mind until even the deepest, most subtle, deepest reaching defilements now completely pulled out. Enduring patience is the greatest ascetic practice. But uh, the greatest thing at all, the highest thing at all, is Nibbana. Kanti Paramanta Potitika Nibbana Paramanti Varanti Buddha you could also translate, you know, enduring patience is the greatest incinerator of defilements. You know, to purify the mind, you know, we have to burn away attachment, craving defilements. And one way of burning it away, and you know, not literally with fire, but we can burn it away with enduring patience. It's good to remember next time when it gets tough, at work, a tough meeting, and your boss is blaming you and criticizing you in front of everyone, and it's even contrary to fact and totally unfair. I think you have all experienced things like that. Ne? Or in the family, some family member doing something really bad. These kind of situations, or even just in traffic, some crazy driver cutting in in front of you. This is when we can remember, aha, I have now an opportunity to start burning away, incinerating my defilements by just patience. Not screaming, not honking the horn, not retaliating. What done? Ajahn Shah was teaching that a lot as well. Training the monks a lot as well. I remember once a senior monk, I think Lupo Kampong, visiting here, and he arrived late at night, and it was winter, June or July, and really cold. We received him here at the Dhamma Hall, he would be staying in that room. 
And straight away when he came, we didn't really have much time to say hello because he had to go to the bathroom after long travel. So I didn't have a chance to explain to him that our hot water system had broken down here. There was no hot water. But we had hot water on top. Because he just arrived, just went to the bathroom. But when he came out, he had taken a shower with the cold water at 10 o'clock at night in, in winter. When I said, no, it's too cold, he was just laughing. And that was a training they got from Ajahn Shah in the early days. So if it's winter and you go into a bathroom, and he didn't even mention to me, it's not like he came out and asked, oh, don't you have hot water? Long, long travel and it's in this bathroom, it's only ice-cold water. So he just doesn't say anything, and just showers cold. Well, this is how we can turn it around. You know, all these situations where we get worked up, upset, angry, where we usually complain, how can I meditate when people give me such a hard time? <laughs> Do you know that complaint? No, I, I can't meditate when these people are so nasty and awful. Or well, the fact that these people are difficult, you know, this is uh, an opportunity to practice the you Oton know, County patient endurance. I always recommend to just go out and you know, ask for it. Rather than going out and saying, oh yeah, I've got this really refined mind, I did my Anapanasati in the morning, and I only hope that no one disturbs my mind now because it's, I want to have another quiet mind when I come back after work and continue meditation. You go out into this world, and we talked about only 100 years' lifespan, three orders of magnitude away from the top human lifespan, only one order of magnitude away from the lowest 10 years, and it's a total disaster. So what do you expect? So you go out and you say, okay, show me. I want to see. I want to see boss. I want to see mother-in-law. I want to see, kids, what you have on offer today to challenge my county. Please give me a real challenge today at work for my patient endurance, because today I want to practice patient endurance. And can you practice, can you develop that Pavami is also known as one of the Pavami, Kanti. Can you develop the Pavami of Kanti when you're on holiday, on a cruise, luxury cruise, and you're floating in the pool on one of these inflatables with a nice food juice, floating in the pool, listening to your favorite music. And now you're developing patient endurance. Is that the way to do it? Not really, no. The way to develop patient endurance is when the going gets tough. When you have nasty people, when people do hurt and offend you and hurt and offend your loved ones. I like to give this comparison with these boxers. Have you ever seen when they do an interview with these boxers who go into a world championship fight? And when they're boasting and psyching themselves up, 
Oh, yeah, a guy like this, I could eat three of them before breakfast. Of course, and when you ask him, even Mike Tyson admitted that often he was quite afraid. Because also he was one of the best boxers ever, and the other guys are also very good. And if they hit you on the nose, even if you're Mike Tyson, you may go down. But they're psyching themselves up, because if you go into a world championship boxing fight, you don't expect people you know, to touch you with velvet gloves or something. It will be tough. And this world is a little bit like, like a boxing fight. It's not like Deva Loka in the human world. So go out and just challenge it. What have you got today? I want to practice my patient endurance. Can you give me something to really try that? If you do harm to anyone, you can't be called a genuine monk. Abstain from harming and abuse and strictly keep the Buddha's rules. Be moderate when taking food and dwell alone in solitude, devoted to the higher mind. This is what all the Buddhas teach. Nai papajito parupa gati, samanohoti parangvihete yanto. Now, someone who is hurting others or inciting others, even verbally, someone who is causing the harm and hurt, that person is not a genuine renunciate, not a genuine monk or nun, not someone who has gone forth truly. So the Buddha here, and bringing it down, the one basic definition of a monk or nun, and by extension, anyone who really tries to practice the teaching of the Buddha, an essence of that is that one doesn't harm or hurt, that one doesn't insult or abuse other beings, certainly intentionally, not to intentionally ever do that. And again, this is so important because Ovada Patimokha, all the Buddhas teaching the same thing. Only 16 lines. Now we have two lines pointing out that anyone who's hurting or harming intentionally other beings they wouldn't really count as a true monk or nun. Anupavato, Anupagato. Third line out of only 16. Not harming not inciting, not hurting, not abusing. So three line out of sixteen is that crucial point. So it shows how important that is. And this is why we are protecting our precepts. In a sense, you can say in almost all of these precepts are meant to prevent hurting or harming in any form, either oneself or others, or both. Usually it's both if you harm. But even all these swords we have as monks, 227, 
we have a rule that the monks are not allowed to play in the water. So why, what has that got to do in asserting and harming? If I'm frolicking in the water, jumping around, splashing water, why am I harming anyone? Where's the harm? You might disturb the fishes, but that is very minor and it's not so different from bathing. Bathing is certainly allowed. But what does it look like if you go to some pond or you go to the beach and then you have got a bunch of monks hopping around and frolicking in the water? Would that give you a boost in faith? Not really. It doesn't look too restrained and then people may lose faith. And if people lose faith in the Sangha, no, that is a huge harm for them. So it's quite fascinating, the even words the Buddha gave us, which first looked like, how could there be much harm? Well, they can actually have considerable harm. But of course, no, the first one is not killing, the most extreme form of harm usually. And the first precept is not to intentionally kill even an ant, even a mozzie. Even an ant or a mozzie that is just biting you. So if it's an ant which is really painful, and you try to scrape it off very carefully that it doesn't die. This is how you retaliate. They hurt you, and you, even in scraping them off, take a big effort not to hurt or harm them. Great exercise. And when we want to protect you know, these precepts which serve that we don't harm or hurt ourselves or others, you know, there's two areas. The one is, okay, not doing the action, but the second is mentally, because we will notice that usually delusion, ignorance is connected with breaking the precepts, finding an excuse. This is why even people who are highly intelligent often break precepts. Because they are so smart that they find a better excuse for doing it. And it usually goes together. We find an excuse, we find some argument for getting angry or for hurting and harming. So if you want to protect your precepts, you also have to protect yourself from wrong view, from delusion, from ignorance which is teaching us sometimes that breaking the precepts is actually good. And starting with the first one, I'm quite concerned about that because I'm watching over a couple of years everywhere the uh, euthanasia is getting legalized now. And recently I heard from someone in the medical profession that has arrived in Queensland. And uh, I haven't looked into details, no, but I think you can getting killed by doctors fully legally now if you are requesting that under certain conditions. And this is something that which happens worldwide and the floodgates are actually opening and getting getting worse. And Canada and sometimes people already in a requesting euthanasia. One was a young woman who was physically healthy and only had a mental disorder. And then uh, requesting getting granted 
to be killed. Old people who can't get in a good care and who just get desperate, have no support base and are then trying to get through the red tape in uh, their health insurance or whatever government support. And then they feel you know, that they end up with euthanasia. And the real evil thing is you know, the argument is that it's actually compassionate. So what happens there is that it's presented that killing is something good and compassionate. And this is what we also have to guard our mind from. We may not do an outright killing, but once someone can convince us that, oh, this is actually compassionate to kill that person, then we may end up, based on that wrong view, on that delusion, breaking the precepts. And that can be extremely serious now, if someone euthanizes their parents, one of the worst karma one can possibly do. So this is what happens. Or abortion. Here the argument is, oh, this is not a human being. This is just like some growth of cells, it's just an embryo, just some fetus. This is not a human being. Now that is a wrong view. And then even a person who normally would never consider killing, based on that wrong view, deluded into that wrong view, they may end up having an abortion, following the wrong argument, the wrong view that this is not really a living being. According to the Buddha, it is a living being. Or in war, it's another one where you can see you know, how they try to convince you, you know, to build up what we call a you know, wrong view. Because you know, people who keep the first precept, they will not be good soldiers. <laughs> They're pretty, pretty hopeless you know, for going to war. So they have to convince you somehow that normally, of course, we don't kill. But this person... These people, they are so bad, they are real Hitlers, they are so evil. This is an exception, because they are so evil, these have to be killed. Again, this is wrong view. The Buddha has never mentioned anyone who is so evil that we can break the first precept, because then we end up on the side of evil ourselves. The Buddha said that Evil or anger can never overcome, can never be overcome by anger, only by non-anger. Evil cannot be overcome by evil, only by non-evil. So I'm just mentioning that because I see that that goes on in the background. And even people who are normally very committed to keeping the precepts may indirectly end up breaking them once Delusion is built up in the mind and they come to the wrong view that sometimes killing is compassionate or they come to the wrong view that this is not really a living being. There's also issues there with brain dead, whether a brain dead person is actually dead. The argument, this is not a human being or living being, some use that even for animals. 
some people claiming that animals don't really have consciousness or they can't feel pain or weird things. It's so obvious that animals feel pain and that they are living beings. But some people need to argue the exploitation and abuse and killing of animals. And they argue even in that direction, trying to build up a wrong view, not really conscious or whatever. And then the trick, of course, we don't kill, but this is an exception because they are so bad and evil. The Buddha gave the simile of the saw to cut off that wrong view and that excuse. And he said, even if murderers, terrorists were to saw off our arms and legs one by one, anyone who is angry at them or develops hatred is not really following his teaching. So just trying not to make the point, if we want to really protect our non-violence, our non-harming, if we really want to protect our first precepts and the other precepts, we also have to protect what is called white view. We have to guard our mind from delusion and ignorance sneaking in and convincing us that something evil is actually good. And that happens a lot. Even if they talk to criminals, they usually find some excuse because I was treated so bad. No, some, some excuse is always there. Yeah, of course we don't take alcohol, but just one glass is not really intoxicating. And then after one glass, it doesn't feel like I'm intoxicated either, and then the second one should be also okay. And by now I'm too intoxicated to recognize that I'm intoxicated. Now this is how it goes. So it's very important not only to guard your actions and speech, but to guard your mind and to guard your mind from delusion. Because ultimately action and speech that springs from the mind comes from the mind. Abstain from harming and abuse and strictly keep the Buddha's rules. Keep the party mocker for monks. Uh, 227 main words. Well, that is what we are trying to do here at Damagibi. It's even in our constitution from BBV Inc. that the monks staying here are committed to upholding the, the Patimaka words, as the Buddha says here. And in lay life, what is the Party mocker in lay life. Five precepts. Uh, we are really committed to that. But great if you can crank up and ideally once a week or at least uh, once a month close to the full moon to do eight precepts for one day. One day, one night. It's usually meant at the next morning. Be moderate when taking food. Isn't it amazing? Only 16 lines of the most essential teaching, and this is mentioned, admittedly, in a mostly addressed to monks and nuns, monastics. But it shows that eating is an important part of the practice. And that's one reason that you have the not eating in the afternoon and eight precepts, because it supports 
and a meditative practice. As one of the the basis of sensuality, you know, all the five senses are so strongly involved with eating. So we can uh, do ourselves you know, a great service by knowing the right measure when eating. We live in busy times, so this is a good synergy because you have to look after your physical health and you have to look after your spiritual progress. And if you know the right measure when eating, you're supporting both. It's very good for your physical body and your physical health. It's an important part of our spiritual practice as well. And well alone in solitude. Again, this is addressed mostly to monastics. But that's one reason that we have Dhammagiri would have been easier not to just buy a house in the suburbs and then every monk gets a room in the house and it's close to where people live, it's easy to visit but it's very different if you live in the bush there's more than a hundred meter for the next human being and you have gotten a solitary kuti so it's not just some weird idea of Damasya but it's exactly what the Buddha encouraged in the Ovada Patimokkha. Pantantra Sayanasanang, a solitary dwelling place. And even coming back and having been to outstandingly good monasteries, this is still really, really good. As in past, the sense of solitude now on top there in the Kutis, and then considering that we are only 45, 50 minutes drive from the CBD, and then that sense of uh, seclusion you have on top there, uh, that is quite uh, special. And I wasn't very delighted uh, even coming back and uh, noticing that again. But this is also why we have no opportunities for people to do that temporarily as guests you know, on retreat joining monastic lifestyle and on retreat, now the two ladies' rooms here. Once people have left, that is also quite solitary, either the mahal, and uh, laymen, as usually one or sometimes two goodies available, now like uh, Kevin and Grayson who are just practicing here. So it's a really important part of practice. So in lay life, I'm aware it's much more difficult when you have a little bit of solitude, you don't immediately destroy it. And very important, the solitude means nowadays no gadget, no internet, no mobile phone, no computer, no iPod, no iPad, no screen, nothing. Else teenagers would all be enlightened because they spend a lot of time in solitude nowadays. It's quite normal what I hear for teenagers to just vanish in their room and then you'd hardly see them, isn't it? But they're not really in solitude in their room. No, they're right on the screen there. And the whole world is there. Insta, YouTube, TikTok, and so on. This is not solitude. Really important point. When we talk about solitude nowadays, it would have to be without any gadget. Devoted to the higher mind. 
Adhichitetra Yoga. What is a higher mind? Hmm? Yeah, and what meditation in particular? Samadhi, necessarily for Samadhi. This is a teaching of all Buddhas. And you see how important Samadhi is. And I know there are teaching out there who say, oh, don't waste your time in jhana. Sukha Vipassad, why inside, no need to develop Samadhi. Please show me where the Buddha ever said that. Ovada Patimokha culminating in Samadhi. Eightfold path culminating in Samadhi, Sama Samadhi. Doesn't mean that you don't have to practice inside, no, for sure. No, only inside and wisdom can fully cut off the defilements. But in order to be inside so strong that it can destroy defilement, it has to be based on samadhi. And samadhi, I think, one reason the Buddha points that out here, rather than mentioning the devoted to wisdom, is because exactly of this danger that we may neglect samadhi. I don't know any Buddhist teaching or tradition where they claim you don't need wisdom. I've never heard that. That is any, anywhere expounded that you only need samadhi. I've never heard that. So that danger doesn't seem to be so great. Now everyone seems to be aware that we have to develop wisdom and insight to understand the Four Noble Truths, to understand dependent origination. to understand you know, the impermanent nature of all things that are put together, all Sankarbas, to understand not-safe, to you know, contemplate and see that whatever arises in our mind externally is just arising and passing away according to conditions so that we can let go. So, When the Buddha here ends with samadhi, it doesn't mean that wisdom is not important. But the danger seems to be more that people neglect the development of samadhi. Because it also needs no, somewhat special conditions. You need no, a certain level of solitude that you can uh, disengage from everyday activity. And it's also quite tough for people nowadays. <laughs> There's a danger that we somehow Again, they get a deluded view that I can leapfrog somebody. I just do straight away wisdom. I'm very smart. I'm so intelligent. People may think I have a university degree, high IQ, and I can crack it. I don't need somebody because my mind is too restless. If the mind is too restless to practice samadhi, it will also be even more too restless to contemplate something as subtle as not safe or dependent origination to such an extent that it can cut defilement. Abstain from any evil deed, accomplish what is good and true, and fully purify your mind. That is what all the Buddhas did. Enduring patience is the greatest ascetic practice Nibbana is called the highest, the supreme by all Buddhas.
abstain from harming and abuse. If you do harm to anyone, you can't be called a genuine monk. Abstain from harming and abuse and strictly keep the Buddha's rules. Be moderate when taking food and dwell alone in solitude, devoted to the higher mind. This is what all the Buddhas did. Thank you for your patience. Can also be an exercise in patient endurance to make it through a long Dhamma talk. <laughs> but then Shah would sometimes talk for many hours at night and they had to sit on plain concrete with a little piece of cloth only. So any comments, questions? A very, very difficult question is brought up uh, regarding euthanasia. So now assuming this is all legalized and um, once parents do not believe in karma, in rebirth, they think there's just nothing after death, which is a wrong view. It's not in calling with reality. But many people have that view nowadays. And now they have some pain condition or severe sickness and they want to get euthanized. What should the child do? Usually the most important thing is that people, when they are sick and have pain, that they get good palliative care, that they get good pain management, and that they get psychological and loved ones support. And I have read it in two different books on that subject, and I was even able to talk to two people who were professionally involved and over professionally looking after dying people who confirmed that usually when there's very good palliative care and very good pain management and very good support of the loved ones and no impression generated that they are a burden, then it's usually not coming up. People usually then will not request to be euthanized. It is usually an expression of a poor or insufficient palliative care or insufficient pain management or feeling that they are too much of a burden or that people in the field they can't cope with it. So the first task would to would be to provide palliative care. You see, when we we say in the euthanasia is a form of killing and we abstain from killing. That doesn't mean that you have to do everything that is medically and technically possible to extend the lifespan. This is two different things. Euthanasia means to deliberately give a certain treatment that is meant to cause death. Palliative care means that you focus on keeping the person comfortable and you're avoiding any unnecessary treatment which doesn't make any sense anymore. So not to euthanize doesn't mean that you have to use every possible technical means to extend the lifespan a little bit longer under great pain. That's the difference between palliative care and normal care in hospital where you try to make people healthy. But if someone in their 90s has got terminal cancer, you cannot make them healthy anymore. And when they already have five 
sorties of chemo and it, it just doesn't work, there's no, no point at some stage if they don't want it to force a sixth course of chemo onto them because maybe that one may not work now. So this is not euthanasia. If someone, for example, assigns some, um, what do you call that? Uh, because you can give instructions in the case that you are incapacitated how to treat you. And if someone, for example, who is suffering from a, a degenerative, incurable chronic disease, and then they give a no resuscitation order, I don't consider that euthanasia. But if someone is in advanced stages of Alzheimer, and they have done when they were still mentally capable, they have given an order that they don't want to be resuscitated, and now in the advanced Alzheimer's state, they get a heart attack or a stroke, and then they're not being resuscitated. In my opinion, this is not euthanasia. That is just avoiding an unnecessary procedure. So that can be done. So if you're in that situation, I mean, this is an extremely difficult one, what you were bringing up with the own parents requesting euthanasia. I would really focus on providing the best possible palliative care, not anything unnecessary to one more chemo and trying to squeeze out that they live another week or month longer under great pain, but at the same time avoiding anything which is really designed to, to kill and uh, communicating that you love them, that you look after them, that this is not a burden. It's obviously very difficult looking after dying people, but that one is willing out of love and appreciation and gratitude to take on that burden. And one doesn't perceive it as, but you can't address it by killing the body because the aversion against pain and the depression and the anger, whatever is there, and this is not in the body, it's in the mind. And usually it also involves the wrong view that there's just nothing after dying. I think that's the most common for suicide. And if that was true, it might make sense, you know, hypothetically. If you have excruciating pain, then nothing may be better. Problem, there is not nothing that continues. And then if it's based also on that wrong view that there's nothing, they're often very confused because they think it's just nothing and then suddenly they notice it continues and they may not even understand what's happening and end up in a very confused negative mind state. They may end up as hungry ghost, Peter word. So in terms of one's own welfare, it's very strongly discouraged. Interestingly, it is also usually a very violent act to others. It's almost impossible to find a situation of suicide where the person is not causing great distress and harm to others. For example, in case the parents are still alive, it's usually extremely difficult for parents. I've seen that. Just imagine if you're a parent, your child commits suicide. It's almost impossible for the parent not to have doubts that they did something wrong, they should have stopped it, they messed up in bringing up the kids. It's usually very painful for a spouse, for children, even friends. It can be very uh, traumatizing for the person who finds them, for the team who may come to the uh, medics, paramedics trying to get them back, 
So it is interestingly, uh, what often people are not aware of, it's, it's quite violent to other people actually suicide in almost all situations. It can vary a bit, but usually it is quite heavy impact. When I came here, there was a young Sri Lankan woman. She had been quite traumatized. I think she witnessed a suicide, someone jumping in front of a train, a subway train, which is also again very traumatizing for the, for the driver. They may find it difficult to continue their job. So usually uh, it goes against the welfare of other beings and against one's own welfare quite apart from how exactly the precept is defined. I've heard different opinions on that one, whether it strictly breaks the first precept, whether the first precept is about killing others, but it's certainly strongly discouraged. The problem is not the body. No, suicide is just getting rid of your physical body, but that's not where the problem is. There's also often the delusion we can't see the suffering anymore. So if you have a dog, I was just recently talking to a, a lady and her dog finally passed away naturally, was very sick. And she found it quite difficult because you see all this suffering. And the moment you euthanize them, you don't see the suffering. But it doesn't mean that the suffering is over. If the dog for some reasons, due to some bad karma, is reborn in hell, the suffering is infinitely worse. You just don't see it. Even if the dog is reborn in Petaloka, the suffering may be worse. You just don't see it. This whole euthanasia thing, I think, is only possible large style if there is a widespread wrong view that death just means nothing, that there's no survival of consciousness beyond death. Otherwise, I think it would never never become popular. It's usually based on that wrong assumption. The same when people so-called mercy killing of their pets. Sometimes it's actually an act of trying to get rid of your own pain in witnessing that. What people can't cope with is their own suffering, witnessing the suffering. What I mentioned to that lady when she first discussed that, now I'm, I'm quite convinced if a cat or a dog really wants to die, they will just stop eating and drinking, or at least eating. And then it wouldn't take that long. And the fact that if they're still eating and drinking, that indicates to me that probably deep down they're afraid they don't want to die. And was fascinating, she said actually she could sense something because in the morning when her dog died, she was eating only very little. But it meant that she was still regularly eating until even the last day. And she could also feel that the dog actually didn't want to die. She could sense that, was too afraid. Okay. If you cause harm to anyone, you can't be called a genuine monk. Abstain from harming and abuse. It's so important to preserve the first precept, to be non-violent.